So I was walking in this morning, I, I happened to see Dawn holding a, a little baby and then other babies around and I was just thinking about babies and, and babies have a lot of, of good things, right? Everyone's always gathering around babies and they're cute and they're special. But, but have you ever thought about how um, altruistic babies are or aren't? They don't think much about others, do they? In, in fact, I, I have never seen a baby that isn't selfish. Yeah. Fair enough. When they're hungry, what do they do? They cry. When they're tired, what do they do? Cry. When they fill their diapers. Well, they smile first usually. <laughs> and then cry if you leave them too long. No, to, to a baby, everything is about them because the only thing they know is I want something and so I cry or, or do something to get that. Maybe they want attention and, and we haven't picked them up in a while, so they cry. And it, just on and on. Now, the, the interesting thing is we're okay with that in babies, aren't we? In fact, it's cute. But is that cute as an adult? You want, so you cry. <laughs> you, you don't get where you want to go to, to lunch today, so you cry and throw a temper tantrum. No, I, I, I can remember often when my kids were younger, not now, but um, <laughs> when my kids were younger, I'm like, okay, this is what a two-year-old does. This isn't what a, an ex does. We're trying to help you grow up. We're trying to help you mature because as adults and as young adults, life is not all about us and our wants, right? And if we live that way, if we live for our desires, if we live pursuing our desires relentlessly and thinking that is the ultimate, that is what is going to bring satisfaction, that is what is going to bring me joy in life, we are going to be sadly, sadly mistaken. And we will be let down because your desires and my desires cannot hold the weight of that expectation. They never will satisfy in the way that we are seeking in life. In fact, when we desire things and pursue them relentlessly, it begins to, to affect all of life and, and, and really fester in all of life. Today, James is going to get really to the heart of one of the issues that the churches he was writing to were facing and some things that he had probably heard that were going on. And he's just going to deal with it straight up and say, this is a problem and this is what needs to be done about it. And so today might be a little harder to hear, but wait until the end because there is hope at the end of this passage. We'll be looking at James chapter 4, James chapter 4, 1 to 6. So if you want to turn there with me, if you don't have a Bible, there's a black Bible underneath the chair around you, hardcover. We invite you to turn there and follow along. If you use version, we do have the event up and you can follow along both the notes and the text um, in your app there. But how do we deal with these desires? These desires that every one of us have had since we were a baby. All of us were babies at one point. All of us had all of our desires met or, or we responded in that way. But how do we change and handle them in a godly way? See, we have these desires that are battling within us and cause us to battle other people. And so James is going to talk about some things and he's going to start by talking about what a life looks like where those desires are supreme. 
What does it look like when, when your biggest goal in life is chasing what you want? And, and so maybe right at the top of your page, right at the top of your notes, just write a couple of your desires. I wish I had this, or I wish this would happen. Sometimes we word this, if only this happens, then life would be great. And so just write a couple of those things at the top. And don't worry, I'm not going to say that, that all desires are bad. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go. So this isn't a trap. Maybe a little bit. But um, write down some things that you desire right at the top and think about those things. Maybe it's the promotion you want at work. Maybe it's the car you want or the, the job you want. Or if I only had a relationship or if my, my spouse would only be like this, our marriage would be better. Think of some of those desires. And then let's go to the text and see what God says about the the desires. Last week in chapter 3, we talked about wisdom. And we compared godly wisdom of humility and peace and worldly wisdom where you grab what you want, you're assertive, and and you, you just chase your desires and that bitter envy and jealousy. And as James compared those, he said God's way is the way of peace. It's the way that will bring a harvest of righteousness. The world's way is destruction. Every evil, every evil act, it creates dissension. And so he set up this foundation of God's wisdom and worldly wisdom. And God's wisdom is the one that brings peace. And now he's going to sort of lower the hammer and say, okay, let's talk about whether there's peace. Let's talk about whether there's peace in the church and what's going on in the church because dissension was a real issue that they were dealing with. And so this section really continues the section from last week and you have to to pair those together. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? And so right from the start, now he gets, okay, what's doing this? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And James just gets right into it. And he starts with asking the question that that was really on his heart. What causes these things? What causes the quarrels and the fights? And this is right after he said, if you're pursuing God, you're going to have righteousness and peace. By the way, why are you fighting? And this is like just boom, lowering the hammer and saying, righteousness and peace is not what you're like. And he's passionate at this point and his his wording is actually a little quicker, a little bit, uh, a little bit harsher because he's like, this is important. The issue is dissension. He said, "I, I already told you that the world's wisdom leads to this kind of dissension, but this is you. This is what's going on in the church. And really, quite frankly, if we're not careful, this is what could go on in our church. This kind of dissension, the bickering, the the division, people that don't really want to be with other people at certain events, or or maybe you sit on different sides of the sanctuary because you can't handle talking in a deeper level with each other. And, And it's so easy in a group to have this kind of dissension. And it's so easy in a church where we are close to each other and opening up to each other. One young father, hearing commotion in his backyard, went and looked, and his daughter and some of her friends were outside, and they're playing, and, and actually they're in this heated quarrel. They're arguing with each other. And he, he entered, and his dad, and he said, what's going on? And his daughter called back and said, Dad, we're just playing church. Out of the mouth of babes. But for the grace of God, but for the grace of God, so go us. 
This is the natural state, the baby state of all my needs are what needs to, to be filled, what needs to be met. And so James says, what causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? The wording here, interesting, the wording he's choosing for quarrels and fights is the wording that was used on a battlefield for warfare. And so this isn't just a light little squabble. He is, he is illustrating physical fighting or violent verbal fighting. Because we usually don't, you know, physically punch each other out, out in the parking lot. We'll save that for sports games. But, um, no, no, but we do it verbally, don't we? And, and we can assault each other verbally. And, and maybe we're more refined and we're just saying, well, in my opinion, you're really wrong. And, and we, we lower the boom. But our language and how we treat each other, these are the battles and the warfare that James is talking about. He says, okay, what causes them? This is a problem. This isn't from God. This isn't God's wisdom. So what causes them? And and, in the second half of verse 1, he says, is it not this? And the idea is, this is a rhetorical question, saying, yeah, yeah, it is this. And so he said, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you. And so right from the start, what causes, what causes fights? What causes dissension? And he says, it's you. It's you. It's not the other person. It's not how the other person treated you. It's you. And he points the finger back at each of us and says, inside it's your passions that are at war with you. That word for passions is our pleasures, our desires. It, it's the same root that we get hedonism out of. You know, that, that pleasure is the highest good. It's a worldview that pleasure is all you seek. And it's that same word that we get. And James is saying, why do you fight? Why do you disagree? It's because of what you want. It's because your desires, that you're just pursuing you. And you're just pursuing what's important to you. Those bodily appetites, those sensuous appetites... These are the pleasures of life that are killing your relationships with other people, James said. Now that's hard to hear. But if you think about it, if you think about it, isn't that true? Think about any, any disagreement you've had. Think about, okay, maybe the majority. We won't say every single one. The majority of disagreements you have, the, the majority of arguments you've had, the majority of times that you've been at odds with another person, isn't it? that you didn't get what you wanted? And let, let's be real. Because it usually is. I've seen and I've, I've mediated so many different disagreements. And in almost every case, it's that the sides just didn't get what they wanted. And James is saying, grow up. Grow up. This, this is not what the children of God should be acting like. Our passions, our desires are not the highest thing in our life. But they can distract us. And they can bring us down. And they can destroy our relationships. In Luke 8, as Jesus is telling the the parable of the seeds, He uses the same words for for the um, seeds that fell among the thorns. And in Luke 8.14, He says, And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures, hedones, of this life. And their fruit does not mature. So even Jesus said, when we chase pleasure, 
when we chase our desires, that can distract us from the gospel. It can distract us from walking with God because we are taking what is earthly, we are taking what is temporary and trying to find eternal significance with that and trying to find satisfaction with that. Every time this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in a negative way. And James says, isn't it this? Your passions are at war within you. And again, it's that battle language because he recognizes our natural man, our natural self wants things. Like we said, from birth, we want things. And the process of maturing in Christ is learning how to control those urges, to control those desires, and bring them under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And when we fail to do that, our lordship is our desires. And it destroys our life. You know, James calls it a battle, a war within us. And and really, we need to acknowledge that it's a war. We need to acknowledge that me fighting my desires and not foisting my desires on other people and not getting angry at other people because they somehow didn't meet my expectations, we need to acknowledge that we are all fighting that. And that that is the root of almost all of our dissension. Because until we acknowledge the seriousness of it, that it is a war inside of us, we will not seriously handle it. It's hard to see. See, when when we make decisions on our own preferences, on our own desires, that feels normal. It feels like what what is right. We don't think about it. We're not intentional. We just make decisions based on, I want this. And so maybe that's that can control so many of our decisions. But when we start to intentionally realize this is a battle, that I am fighting what I want, I'm fighting what the flesh wants, then we can start to bring this under subjection and bring this under the control of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we, we do just go through this week and ask yourself why you make the decisions you make. Is this based on just what you want or, or is it based on what others around you will want? Or what others around you will find best? What will bring glory to God? What will serve and love others? Does this love God? Does this love others? What's missing in there is does this love me? Right? But that's our default. That's what we, that's what we because of our fleshly nature, that's what we're born with and we've got to fight it. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, he's reminding them, this isn't your home, this is temporary, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Your desires, if unchecked, are warring against your very soul, according to God's Word. And we need to take this seriously. We need to realize how important it is to think this through. See, when our flesh desires anything strongly, when, when we have anything in our lives that we keep thinking about, and every day we're waking up, we can't get out of our mind, and when we have these things that seem to always keep coming up, we need to start asking some tough questions. Why am I always thinking about X? And, and, and it's hard. Some, some of these things, many of these things are good things that God wants us to enjoy, but they can't be the ultimate. They can't be our highest priority. And, and so if, 
if this is all we can think about, if all we can think about is that promotion, if all we can think about is that new car, if all we can think about is, boy, I wish I had kids, then we are elevating our desires to a higher point in life than God ever intended them to have. Many of those things are beautiful. Many of those things are wonderful. But they come underneath our desire for God. And so we ask some tough questions. Why is there this longing? Why am I not content? Where is my worth and satisfaction? What am I hoping will happen by this desire being met? James is saying, what causes quarrels and fights? It's your passions. You've let your desires be unchecked and they are ruling you. It's interesting. James here, James is more concerned with their attitudes and actions rather than the content of the argument. What do you never see here? He never says who's right and who's wrong. Because that's not the issue. Now, for many of us, it is because we're right. But um, even the need to be right is an issue of respect, isn't it? And wanting respect. A desire for respect, a desire for power, a desire for prominence, a desire for justice. Some of those desires are good, but they can't control us. James doesn't care who's right, who's wrong. He said your actions are wrong. Your attitudes are wrong. So he goes on in the first half of verse 2 to explain how this works. You desire and do not have, so you murder. And there's a parallelism to this verse that I think ESV has right. You desire and do not have, and so you murder. That's A. And then the second half of that, the parallel statement is, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And he's describing how this works. That desire there is the word for lust. You crave something. You lust something. And it's unmet. And unmet desire is such a dangerous thing. It can control us. It can, it can, it can feel like that's all there is. And when that's the case, it's an idol. And James is saying, no, you desire and you don't have these unmet desires. And so you murder. And you're like, wow, that, that's going, that's going all the way. And, and probably here, James isn't talking about actual murder. Although definitely, when we let our desires control us, anything can happen. But think about what, what we've often said. James here is reflecting on the words of Christ and the teaching of Christ. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? about our words and murder? In Matthew five twenty-one to 22, Jesus said, You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable in the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable in the hell of fire. I think James was probably thinking of this passage when he says, You want and you don't get. And so you murder. You murder with the tongue. You murder with your words, with your attitudes. He's just described the tongue as full of deadly poison. And we murder our relationships. And we murder the unity of the body of Christ. And we murder our ability to come together and do God's work. Because we want and we don't get. Village an attitude of of dissension, an attitude of wanting and not getting, putting our own desires above others, that is as offensive to God as murder. And we need to see it that way. 
a funny story. An elderly couple lived together in a nursing home. And they'd been married 60 years, but their relationship was constant arguing, disagreements, shouting contests. The fights didn't even stop when they got to the nursing home. The couple argued and squabbled from the time they got up in the morning until they fell to bed at night. The nursing home supervisor eventually threatened to throw them out if they didn't change their ways. Even then, the couple couldn't agree on what to do. Finally, the wife said to her husband, I'll tell you what, Joe. (laughs) Different Joes. (laughs) I'll tell you what, Joe. Let's pray that one of us dies. And after the funeral is over, I'll go live with my sister. Takes, take, takes a moment. <laughs> we, we laugh about it, but their life is so full of disagreements and squabbles that even at the, at, when, they, when they have a chance to deal with it, she's like, I, I, I'm praying that one of us dies and I hope it's you. And then I'll go live with my sister. She doesn't see herself as the problem. Neither did. And, and we laugh about stories like this. But we know in our relationships, we know that when there's struggles, we start to feel some of these things. We start to feel such an anger and such a bitterness and such a resentment. This doesn't, ha- this doesn't even just apply to the church. It does apply to marriages. It does apply to friendships. Any of our relationships, when we elevate our own desires and when we're chasing those and when we expect someone else to meet those other than God... We are destroying our relationships. And so if you're sitting here today and saying, my my marriage is struggling, we are fighting all the time, it's you. Start there. If you're you're like, I can't get along with anyone at work and, and there's constant bickering, it might be you. Start there. Start with desires and whether those desires have become God in your life. James goes on the second half of, of there, the, the second statement. You covet and cannot obtain. Craving and striving for something that you can't get. And so maybe there's something blocking that. Maybe it's a way that you just can't have this, but you crave it, you want it. And something earthly and temporary becomes our ultimate concern. And so we fight and we quarrel. Frustrated desire almost always leads to violent, destructive attitudes which affect our actions and actually our whole life. Did you catch that? Frustrated desire, desire that is unmet, often leads to violent, destructive attitudes which affect our actions and our whole life. And so if we're struggling with attitudes, if we're struggling, we need to look at what desires have been frustrated and why those are too important in our life. That's what James is saying here. See, if not taking care of disputes and bickering cause deep damage. If, if we don't take care of the desires that lead to these d- disputes and the envy, it affects every part of our life. You can't be angry. You can't be an angry person in one area of your life and have peace in all your other relationships. I have never seen that to be the case. Either you have the peace of God ruling in your life or you don't. And so you can... You can have arguments and be in disagreement with your spouse all day long, and I guarantee that's affecting the rest of your life and your other relationships. 
because your desires aren't being met. And that's often when people fall into affairs because then they want their desires. Their desires are still king in their life and they want them to be met by someone else. If you're keeping your distance from anyone, anyone in this room, if you're holding grudges, if you're grumbling about someone, I guarantee that's affecting all of your relationships. No one wants to be around that. It festers. It's like you have some strange, contagious disease. No one wants to be around it. And so we need to take care of these unchecked desires. The desires that become our pursuit. So remember, unrestrained desires, those desires that we look for satisfaction will never be fulfilled here on this planet. We are made for the eternal. And the... (laughs) We know this from desires. Desires never satisfy completely, right? And you think of some of the things that people chase after in this world. If you go into drugs for the escape and for the high or whatever, what happens with drugs? You have to take more and more. You have to take harder and harder drugs because they never satisfy for long. If you pursue relationships or sex outside of marriage, that, that has to get more and more and it has to get more bizarre or it has to be met in different ways because it doesn't satisfy completely because it is not how God planned it to be. Adrenaline junkies. I'm not saying that going on roller coasters is bad, but adrenaline junkies, what happens is you need a greater and greater thrill and now you're jumping off. I read someone jumped off Mount Whitney the other day. They had a parachute. Still not not a good idea. You don't have the the right height and the elevation and the air and all kinds of things. But we keep wanting something else to, to make us happy. And we are eternal creatures and we will never be satisfied and happy with things of this world. God wants us to enjoy them, but they are never the ultimate. And so James says, unchecked desires will destroy your relationships. What causes fights and passions? It's you. It's your passions. You desire and do not have. You covet and cannot obtain. And then he goes on in the second half of 2 and verse 3 to to talk about the next thing that unchecked desires destroy. And it destroys our prayer life. It destroys our prayer life by corrupting our focus. The end of 2, you do not have because you don't ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And so he goes to, well, why is the desire not being met? He's already said God is a good God and wants to give good gifts to his, his, his children. But he says, you do not have because you don't ask. You have been going to the wrong source for satisfaction. And, and he's hitting them hard here. Yeah, you're fighting. That's evidence of, of the passions and that's evidence of something deeper. You are not walking with God. You are not. Your prayer life stinks because you're not asking for these things. You're, you're going to the world for satisfaction, not for God, and it will not satisfy. Yet God wants us to enjoy His creation. He wants us to derive pleasure from what He has created. I'm going to the mountains this week and I'm just going to sit by that lake and pretend I'm fishing and... Um, Enjoy that beauty. But that's not ultimate. That's going to point me back to God and who He is and what He's created. He wants us to enjoy His creation His way. 
for His glory. He doesn't want us to elevate the, the creation to the status of an idol and replace the Creator. But that's what Satan wants us to do. Satan wants us to take those desires and that passion and make it primary. How many of you read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't, get it out of our library, read it. Fantastic read of, uh, interesting read because it's from the standpoint of how would demons and the chief devil and, and, and his nephew, how would they try to tempt believers? How would they try to, to lead them astray? And when, when C.S. Lewis is writing about desires and passions, he says this, and the senior devil says to his understudy, Wormwood, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal satisfying form, we are in a sense on the enemy's ground. The enemy is God. Okay, so understand that, that how it's written. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage the humans to take pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. And that's, that's not the word of God, but boy, is that profound. That Satan wants to take what God has created for us to enjoy and make it too important with a lesser and lesser satisfaction. James is saying, you you don't have because you don't ask. You haven't gone to God. You haven't looked for it as a good gift. You've tried to to fulfill these desires in your own way. James is saying, ask. But ask rightly. And and he gets to verse 3 there, because maybe they'll say, well, I did ask, but God still didn't do what I said. And, and we, we so often can come to God and we can think He's our personal vending machine. If I just put in the right words, the right coins, poof, I get what I want. Where's the focus? It's still on my desire. It's still on what I want. God is just the magic genie that gives us three wishes or a hundred wishes and we've reduced God to, to this form of self, self-satisfaction. But James is saying, no, you've, you ask and you do not receive in verse 3 because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You still want your own selfish desires. And, and the, the wording there for spend it on your passions is to squander. Same word that the prodigal son uh, was described, the prodigal son. You, you squander what God wants to do. You, you want to squander his answers to prayer on your passions. God has more for you than to meet your pleasures. You catch that this morning? God wants more for you. He has more good for you than getting that thing that you want. But we only think of our desires and passions and pleasures. Not God's glory, God's answer, God's will. He isn't our vending machine village. He is the God that created all things. The God that knows all things. The God that has a perfect plan for His creation and wants us to to have good things and wants us to be blessed 
if we do it his way in his time with him as king. He will meet your true needs, but we have to trust him and be content in him. See, when we're not happy with what he gives, he's the giver of all good things, right? When we're not happy with what he gives, we are questioning his very nature. If I'm not content, if I'm not satisfied with what God has given me as I've come to him in prayer, if I'm not satisfied with his answers to prayer, I'm saying, God, you don't know enough to do what's best for me. And you don't know enough to answer. You're not strong enough to answer my prayers. But hey, if you did it my way, things would be a lot better. That's why discontentment throughout Scripture is such a heinous sin. Because it is questioning God's very actions and His goodness and His rightness and His ability. God wants us to enjoy His gifts. He just doesn't want those gifts to be an idol. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus is talking again in the part of the Sermon on the Mount and, and part of the teaching James is expanding on. Jesus says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And then he talks about the goodness of God. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Ha, eat this. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? The problem isn't that God isn't giving good things. The problem is that we don't recognize them and we want other things. Village, trust God. Trust His plan. Trust His sovereignty. He is doing good things in your life, even if it doesn't feel like that to us. But we've got to bring our desires into subjection, into submission to His will. See, we often don't see him work. We often don't see his blessings because we haven't asked with the right heart and motives of submission, of coming to him, of asking questions like, is this, is this request, when I, when I make a request, is this really just about me? Or is this about glorifying God? And when I come in prayer, how can I pray in a way that is according to His will, that would lift God up, that would glorify Him, that would show Him to others. God answers our prayers when we come with the right heart, when we pray according to His will. In 1 John 5, 14 and 15, we read, and this is the confidence we have toward Him, the confidence, the the surety that we have with God, that if we ask anything according to His will, according to His will, seeking what He wants, not what I want, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of Him. See, the purpose of prayer and why we struggle with prayer sometimes, the purpose of prayer is not to indulge our whims. It's not to indulge our our desires, our selfish desires or our pleasures. Remember what James said. What are our pleasures in with us? A battle, a war. They're natural. That's not the purpose of prayer. And if that's what we're going to God in prayer for, He's not answering. We have a whole wrong view of who God is. And so we have to say, am I being selfish in prayer? 
Am I being self-pleasing? James' first two points in this text is we often are selfish with each other and we're selfish with God. Great message, right? But it's real and he's leading up to the answer. But we've got to understand how serious this is. There's other reasons for unanswered prayer in Scripture. Unconfessed sin. Um, Husbands, not living with your wife in an understanding way is listed as something that will stop your prayer life. Which I would argue is, again, seeking our own pleasures. Seeking our own desires. So how should we pray? How do we? Because God wants to hear what's on our heart. He wants to give us good gifts. But we pray in the context of wanting His will. Not my will, but your will be done. And so when we pray, some, some ingredients of prayer should be, are we seeking God's honor and God's glory? And so as we pray for someone that, that maybe is sick and we want healing for them, our part of that prayer should be so God will be glorified. So his name will be elevated. So, so it's always about God. Always. That's the focus. As we pray, we should seek his will and his purposes. So here's the thing. God always answers prayer. And if it's a no or if it's with something we didn't pray for, that's because that was better for us. That was for his glory and our good. And so seek his will. It's okay to pray, if it be your will, Lord, do this. James is going to talk about that later. I I think when it comes to our desires, we need to pray that we will love God ultimately, that we will love his ways, that we will love his commands, because his way is what will ultimately satisfy our desires. We talked about that last week with the world's wisdom and God's wisdom. And the world is trying to satisfy everything they can with their, with their way of life. And God says, I've given you the instructions. I've given you the plan. Why not do what you know will bring joy instead of chasing what you know won't? Now, how should we pray? We should also be praying in, in light of verses 1 and 2 for reconciliation in our relationships. Pray for the other person. If you have someone that you're at odds with, pray for them. Pray blessing on them. Pray that God will reveal the desires in your heart that aren't being met, that you have now elevated to idle status at the expense of your relationship with another human being made in the image of God that you might spend eternity with. Is your fight worth it? No. That's how we should pray. So we know that unchecked desires destroy our relationships. Unchecked desires destroy our prayer life because it's all about us and we're treating God as our own vending machine. Point number three, unchecked desires betray and destroy the ultimate, our relationship with God. Unchecked desires betray and destroy the ultimate in life, our relationship with God. Let's read, look at verse 4. And this is where it all just comes to a head. It all comes together. James is, is just so full of passion here. You adulterous people. Thanks, James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
and, and his passion, you get the feeling, is out of his love for this people and says, don't you realize you're ruining your life because you're chasing what you want? So he starts with you adulterous people. And, and the word there, interesting, it's a really strange word because it's in the feminine. So it's basically saying, you adulterous wives or wife. And he's not speaking only to the women. So guys, you're not off the hook here. This goes back to the Old Testament and, and how often the people of God were, were um, referred to. And then also in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, the people of God were referred to as married to God. The marriage relationship was used to illustrate his relationship with his people. In the New Testament, we're called the bride of Christ. And so James here is just tapping into that illustration of marriage. And, and these metaphors are not accidental. You have to realize the power of them. And so in Jeremiah 2.2, we go back to the Old Testament. We read the prophet is again trying to turn a people back to God. He says, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And, and God is saying, I remember how you were, you, you loved me. How you, you followed me as a bride to her husband. But then in Jeremiah 3.20, the very next chapter, Jeremiah has to write, Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. In the book of Hosea, which we're going to look at in Minor Prophets today, the whole thing is about a wife not being faithful to her husband to illustrate that Israel was not faithful to God, but he still loved her and still chased her. James says you're adulteresses. When you chase your passions, when you chase the world, you're cheating on God. Now that's strong language, but it's it's what he says. You're cheating on God. Seeking our ultimate pleasure from the world and not from knowing God is adultery. It's, It's disturbing to God and it should be to us. It should be disgusting to us because God is the ultimate source of our satisfaction. God is the one who meets our needs. And he he describes this with two more phrases. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? The friendship with the world is identifying with the world, flirting with the world. How is our life like the world? What pleasures are we chasing that are worldly pleasures? John Wesley said, anything that cools my love for Christ is the world. Yeah. And and James is saying, this friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility. It makes God an enemy. That's not an enemy you want to make. See, when my desires are what I chase and not God, my desires are now what is most important to me. But think about friendship with the world. Think about what we tolerate. Think about how we can easily have the creep of worldliness come into our lives. What in my life is more indicative of worldliness than godliness? That's a scary thing. You know, we, 
the, the traditional thing to go to here because it's just so easy is entertainment. What in my entertainment do I find pleasure in that is offensive to God? That's friendliness with the world. That's being an adulterous people. What actions do I do that I find pleasure in that are offensive to God? What do I accept? How do I talk? What language do I use? James says it straight up. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. There are two worldviews at war. The worlds and gods. We talked about that last week. The thing that he's saying is the two can't coexist. You can't straddle this one. If you're not sold out for God, you're part of the world system. And that makes God an enemy. Christians cannot peacefully coexist with this world, with evil. And if we can be at peace, if we can be comfortable in this world, then we need to evaluate where we're at with God. See, unchecked desire betrays and destroys the ultimate, our relationship with God. It betrays as an adulterous bride but can betray her husband. Then in verse 5, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? There's a lot of debate about this verse and whether it's our Spirit or God's Spirit and, and who's jealous. I think the ESV has it exactly right. I, I think James is going back to the Old Testament. How is God described when, in reference to his people? He is a jealous God. And we're like, oh no, we can't use that word. That's a bad word. No, no, jealousy is appropriate at times, right? I am jealous of my wife. If I see one of you making moves on my wife, I am a jealous husband. And I might lose it and hit you first, but no, no. We'll, <laughs> then I'll confess. No, I have a right... I have a right to be jealous of my marriage relationship, right? She has a right to be jealous of my time, uh, of knowing that I'm not flirting with another lady, that I'm not spending inappropriate time with another... No, no, that's right. That's good. That's what it means when it says we have a, a jealous God. And this fits into the, the, the idea of you're an adulterous people. God made us. He brought us to himself. His Holy Spirit drew you to him. We accepted him. We are his people, his bride. And God is jealous of that. And when we cheat on God, he's not happy. And that's what this verse is saying. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose when the scripture says all those Old Testament verses about God being a jealous God, he yearns jealously over the spirit, our spirit, the person that he has made to dwell in us. Now, we can, we can take this as a warning, and it should be. James is saying it as a warning, that God is a jealous God, that we should pursue him first. But there's a beauty in this verse too. Do you catch it? It says that God yearns for you. The God that created the universe wants relationship with you, with me. He's only jealous because of his deep love for us. I really am not very jealous of any of the rest of you spending time with, with another person. Because I'm not married to you. And so this is a verse, yes, of warning, but of beauty, of saying that God yearns for us. 
He loves us. But that means he wants total allegiance from us. Total love for us. James goes on into verse 6. It says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting Proverbs 3.34 there, and it's quoted elsewhere in the New Testament, to, um, which says, toward the scorners, he is scornful, God opposing the proud, but to the humble, he gives favor. And again, we see this warning to the proud that God opposes. That means he is actively in opposition to us when we are proud and chasing our own way, chasing our own desires. But this verse also has the greatest hope that we see in this passage. And that's the the giant last section of your notes, the big but, is our giving God gives an abundance of what we need to fight this battle. He gives grace. Our giving God gives an abundance of what we need to fight this battle, and that's grace. Because he's pursuing us, because he loves us, because he wants to be our ultimate, he gives enough grace for it to happen. Verse 6, but he gives more grace. And that word but there says this is in opposition to the first five verses, or this is an answer to the first five verses. Yes, our our fleshly desire destroy relationships and destroy our prayer life and can destroy our relationship with God. But it doesn't have to be that way because God gives enough grace to cover that. He gives an overwhelming amount of grace to the humble, more than we would ever need to overcome sin and the desires of the world. And and this, this is... I think a couple different aspects. It's God and His grace helping us overcome or helping us withstand sin. But at the same time, when we understand the beauty of God's grace and that we don't deserve it, it it draws our heart to God. It draws our affection to the giver of that grace. You know, I've done a lot of marriages and I have never had to tell a bride or a groom, okay, today... I really hope you can start loving your spouse. No, no, at that moment, they're like, woo, they love their side. That's all there is. Just sometime when the bride is walking down, peek back at the groom's face. That's all there is. And, and it is it is a joy that day. And, and that's what God's grace does. It, it doesn't force us to accept something we don't want from God. It draws our heart to want Him and take pleasure in Him above all else. Because of what he's done for us. Because of that loving grace. Paul Washer, I'm stealing AJ, a quote that you posted the other day. He said, a lot of people think that Christianity is you doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things you love in order to go to heaven. No, that's a lost man with religion. A Christian is a person whose heart has been changed. They have new affections. That's verse 6. That's the message. But he gives more grace. And his grace is sufficient. His grace will meet all of your desires. His grace will meet all of your needs. His grace will fulfill your wants in eternal ways that last. And there is always enough. And there is always more to come. Paul says the same thing in Romans 5.20. 
Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. We all are sinners. We, are, we all are the selfish baby. But at some point, the Holy Spirit comes and reveals the gospel to us. And, and we know that Jesus Christ, even though we were sinners, while we were still sinners, out of His love, He came to earth as a baby. God Himself came to earth as a baby and lived a perfect life and then was crucified on that cross, a death He didn't deserve that we deserved. And He was crucified in our place to pay the penalty for our sins, for our selfishness. And He says, now, if you just follow Me, repent and follow Me, those sins are paid for. They're done. They're taken care of. That's grace. Because we don't deserve it. But He just pours His love on us and gives us an opportunity for salvation if we will give our hearts to Him. But we have to accept it. His grace is sufficient, but it is resistible when dealing with the sin in our lives. And so we can live a life only focused on our own passions our own needs and upset that I'm not getting my way and upset that people are in the way of me getting what I want and upset that people aren't putting me first in their lives and we'll live a miserable life. But God gives grace to the humble. He gives that sustaining grace to those who will admit their need for Him, that will accept the gift. See, humble here. Is, is coming under the sovereignty of God. It's submitting to God, saying He is God and I am not, which part of that is saying I accept the good that He wants for me. I don't have to chase my own desires. His good is better. Pride holds on to that, but God's good is better. And when we think of these passions, but what desires in your life are, are ruling What desires in your life have affected friendships, relationships? What have you put above those relationships? The Matthew passage where he talks about murder and your words murder and and we can't come at each other and call each other fool and we have to be careful of our anger. The very next two verses say this. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. He says, stop worship. Go make it right. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I want you to think through these points. Are there areas that we have broken relationships that it might be us? And if so, make a commitment now to go pursue those people and, and, and repent and ask forgiveness and reconcile those relationships. Maybe you're sitting here and you're just mad at God. Mad at God because life hasn't turned out as you want, that you've gotten the raw end of life. And he's like, no, that's just, again, our own idea of what life should be. We're holding on to it higher than our relationship with God. And so this morning, maybe you need to give that to God and say, you know what? I submit to God and His way, His will. I'm going to follow Him and see what glorifying Him looks like. I asked you at the beginning to write down a couple of of wants and desires you have. And again, those might be good desires that God has given. 
But go back and look at that after reading the passage and say, are these desires underneath the, the submission to God, the will of God, or have they become too important in my life? And as we do, we lay ourselves on the altar, we give ourselves to Christ, and we come to Him. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, I pray that You would overwhelm us with Your grace with that treasure that we found, that you would blow us away with what you've done for us, how you've changed us, that you gave your life for us. Lord, overwhelm us with that so that becomes our passion, that becomes our focus, that becomes our greatest desire. And all of this earthly stuff just falls underneath it, Lord. Lord, I pray that we would be people of your grace, willing to show your grace for, to others rather than demand our own rights and our own wants. Lord, people that would be so enamored with your grace and amazed by your grace that we come to you in prayer and say, your will, not my will. Your way is better than mine, God. And I will love it and I will cherish it. Lord, people that are devoted to you that don't, don't cheat on you with the world that we aren't stained by the world, as you've said several times in James, but we seek a life of purity because, Lord, we are your bride and we want to come dressed in white, loving you above all else. Help that to be what we're about this week. In your precious name, amen.